This is Talking Beats. Welcome. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. On today's program, we're speaking with political scientist and expert of the United States Supreme Court, Nancy Mavidi. She's the author of a number of highly regarded books on the Supreme Court, including Representation Rights and the Burger Years, Queen's Court, Judicial Power in the Rehnquist Era, and Picking Judges. The scholar is also professor and chair of political science at Tulane University. I'm pleased to have her here, Nancy Mavidi. Welcome. Thank you, Daniel. Pleasure to be here. What's going on with Chief Justice John Roberts? Is he a traitor to the conservative cause, or is he exercising his power and expressing his legalistic views in a fair manner? Uh, well, of course, it depends on your perspective, <laughs> how, you, uh, how you read what the Chief Justice is doing. I would say that most judicial scholars see our Chief Justice as an institutionalist, and his primary concern is the reputation and the legitimacy of the U.S. Supreme Court, and in fact, the entire U.S. federal judiciary. And so I think what he sees before him is a court that is perceived as highly politicized, a court that is in reality highly fractured, that has you know, clear ideological blocks. And what he's attempting to do, I think, is steer his court and steer court majorities in such a way as to build the broadest consensus possible um, on sometimes the narrowest of grounds in order to present the court as less politicized or as showing uh, more of a concern about its role in separation of powers. How long has the Supreme Court been viewed as politicized and divided? Is this a, a new thing? Is, has it been accelerating over the past few decades? Tell us a bit about the history of, of the divisions and how the court's perceived by the public. Well, that's a complicated question. I mean, I think uh, this is not a new phenomenon, what we see regarding the Roberts Court. The Supreme Court has been understood as influenced by political factors uh, for quite a long time not only by political scientists, but I think by court watchers and uh, indeed by uh, members of the public. There, there is the reality that the way we select our judges, uh, our federal judges, uh, has a strong influence of politics in it, uh, of partisan influence, in fact. And so there have been, you know, periods in the court's past, in the 20th century, certainly, and before, really, but, you know, during the period of, of modern journalistic coverage of the court, you know, there have been periods in which the court is perceived as too ideological or motivated by a policy interest rather than legal concerns. And so I think what we're experiencing now is not new in kind, but it might be new in degree. And, you know, I have a lot of colleagues who write on this issue, obviously, and Many of them suggest that ideological motivations and factors have increased dramatically uh, over the last several decades, that the selection process is more politicized, that the judges who emerge from that process have much stronger affiliations with partisan and policy orientations than they did in the past. And I think we, we see some of that play out with the way the public 
and the journalistic commentary community reacts to some of the court's decisions. There is a tendency to report and discuss decisions uh, in terms of the political framework, and that, in a sense, reifies and reaffirms the perception of the court as political. You mentioned the past few decades. Let's go back a little farther. 1969 to 1986, Warren Burger was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, serving in between the courts of Chief Justices Earl Warren and William Rehnquist. I wonder, did the court under Burger serve as a sort of bridge from left to right? Well, the Burger Court had a long tenure, and it was a court that was predominantly dominated by its centrist justices. So it, too, was a court that was uh, fractured uh, and polarized between a right and a left wing, a left wing that consisted of uh, old holdovers from the Warren era, uh, previously appointed justices, and then a right-of-center, more conservative wing, many judges appointed by Richard Nixon. But what was true about the Berger years was that it was expected to be a counter-revolution. It was expected that Nixon would reshape the court in a profoundly conservative direction. And that, in fact, did not happen. And so the centrist judges really controlled both the pace of change and the kind of change. And while there were some retractions of some of the uh, more left progressive decisions that came out of the Warren era. Uh, There were also some very progressive decisions that came out of the Berger era, Roe versus Wade. Uh, The uh, abortion rights case is probably the most profound example. But as the court continued towards the end of its tenure, you know, there, there were more influences from more conservative appointed judges, Reagan appointed judges. Yes, it was somewhat of a bridge, but it was, I think, more of a, a period of its own. Uh, again, a period of judicial centrism and a lack of a strong guiding philosophy, interpretive philosophy uh, that dominated the court. You mentioned that it didn't become as conservative as people expected it to be, especially given the Nixon influence. Why do you think that happened? Why didn't it go far to the right like the expectation laid out? Well, uh, you know, there are a lot of different factors we might talk about there. The The kind of judges who were appointed back in the 1970s and even through the early 1980s were still not the ideologically centrally focused judges that we see coming out of, let's say, the Trump administration. These were still appointments that were produced by a semi-consensus process between presidents and Senate. And although, again, Richard Nixon was profoundly motivated by certain issues, law and order and criminal justice issues principally, he still managed to, uh, to appoint people who were rather moderate across the board of a range of other issues. And again, although the court was an important issue for Nixon as a candidate and then as a president, it didn't, I think, judicial appointments didn't achieve the very high profile element that they came to achieve let's say, by the time of George W. Bush, 
where the emphasis of the conservative wing in the Republican Party was to control the federal judiciary, to control the policy outputs by attending very carefully to the kind of judges uh, who were appointed. Uh, And that took place through a very different kind of screening process. So when we think about the Berger era and even, even the early Rehnquist era, we're dealing with a time period that really doesn't exist anymore in terms of the politics of judicial selection. Do you think it's because the politics of the country have moved, or is it because the politics of the selection process have gotten more public and more intensified by outside forces? Well, that would be that would be one argument that a lot of uh, political scholars would make, that what has profoundly changed the judicial selection process is the increasing role of outside interest groups, of ideologically oriented interest groups, uh, primarily of the right, since for these conservative movement groups, wresting control of the judiciary from what is perceived as left-wing dominance is a high, high priority and is really emphasized to conservative-leaning voters as well. And it is unified with an argument around social issues being important, being important to those voters. And so outside interest groups, most of us have heard of the Federalist Society, but there are others who have come to play an outsized role in what had previously been a a government-dominated process where a president's Justice Department, to some degree, a president's White House staff, and then members of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate bargained around appointments at times, particularly lower federal court appointments. That process has changed a lot. And it's difficult to say, is it being driven by the public or being driven by the interest groups? It's a mutually reinforcing process, perhaps is easiest to say. I wonder what your take is on the accelerating, increasing influence, if it is increasing, of outsized groups, you say an outsized influence. What's your take? Is it healthy for the judicial system to be exposed and vulnerable to pressure from these groups, or is it damaging? Well, one thing to recognize is that there have always been outside influences. I mean, the American Bar Association is, of course, an outside influence and was brought in during the Eisenhower administration as a method of vetting, of professional vetting of judicial candidates with the idea of increasing a a kind of professional review to prevent cronyism. So, you know, it, it isn't the case that there have never been or not been outside political groups or political interest groups lobbying, lobbying presidents about uh, nominees. I think what we have, though, at least with the current system um, under the Trump administration, is almost a delegation of what is a White House and administration task to movement conservative groups uh, who have a very clear agenda about the kind of judges they want. And that, again, it's a difference perhaps of degree rather than kind, depending on your point of view. But I don't think it 
has been good for the judiciary because of the perception it creates. It creates the perception that the court is just, or the courts, are just another political branch. And there is no difference between a Republican-oriented, a Republican-appointed judge and a member of Congress. And I think that is a damaging perception for the institution, for its legitimacy, for its efficacy. And that's, I think, the impression that Chief Justice Roberts is struggling to counter and is trying to use his own influence to counter. You brought us to the present. So last week, there were two major cases decided, one regarding DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, and the other regarding workplace discrimination in Title VII. What surprised you about these rulings? I'm referring to both the outcomes and the way individual justices ruled. Well, let me start with the uh, the Bostock ruling, which is the Title VII case, which involved the question of whether uh, protections against discrimination on the basis of sex in the workplace should apply to persons who were terminated because of sexual orientation, gender identity. Did the word sex cover this sort of discrimination? And, you know, in reading about the decision, of course, we know it was six to three. We know that the court found that, yes, the statute can be read to extend to include discrimination on the basis of sex broadly understood uh, as a categorical discrimination. Some commentators were surprised about uh, Gorsuch and his writing of the decision and the argument he made. Uh, I know it'll sound like, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking now. I was not terrifically surprised because I know that Gorsuch is a profoundly committed textualist. This is the approach he has identified with as a legal conservative. And I think he also gave some indication during oral arguments for the case and its companion cases that he was focusing on the language of the statute and thinking about it and thinking about what it conveyed in terms of the words of the statute. So his presence in the majority and indeed his writing the majority Uh, opinion didn't necessarily surprise me. I was a little surprised to see Roberts as part of that silent majority. And there are lots of reasons we could talk about why that's surprising and what he was doing there. But I think I'll just pause here in case you want to follow up in a particular direction. Well, in terms of Gorsuch, I I was going to ask if you compared the way two conservative justices wrote their opinions, Gorsuch and the dissent from Samuel Alito wrote, quote, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits employment discrimination on any of five specified grounds, race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. And Alito added, neither sexual orientation nor gender identity appears on that list. So if you look at two conservative justices, Alito and Gorsuch, and you see the resulting opinions, the majority and the dissenting, what does that tell you about the nature of of a political affiliation of a justice? Well, I think what, what the case demonstrates most interestingly are the fractures that exist within the conservative block on the court. And, you know, there are, there are colleagues who disagree with me about this. They think, oh, no, interpretive philosophy is just a uh, post hoc rationalization for a pragmatic decision. 
Uh, that is one way this majority ruling is being read. But what I think the difference between the Alito argument uh, that was joined by Justice Thomas and the Gorsuch argument reflect is, you know, a profoundly different way of understanding statutory interpretation of how we should read statutes, and in particular, what importance should be given to original meaning or understanding of original meaning at the time. And this is a profound cleavage between legal conservatives. Originalism as a philosophy is also associated with constitutional interpretation, and the idea is to privilege not so much the original intentions of the framers of any particular law, but the original understanding. Well, what Gorsuch was saying is, you know, we can't be detectives about all of that. All we have is what Congresses and ratifying majorities agreed to, and that is the language that's before us. And the word sex refers to discrimination on the basis of someone's sex expectations about their sex, etc. And so that was the philosophy and that was the approach he was pushing in his opinion. And he kept it fairly narrowly focused on that and didn't consider some of the other more cultural conservative problems like the issue of transgender students and bathrooms and locker rooms. Whereas I think what Alito was demonstrating is that not only is he motivated by an originalist approach, he's also a cultural conservative who cares about the social policy positions on a range of issues uh, to do with religious freedom, et cetera, et cetera. And his opinion was loaded uh, with commentary about that. So if anyone was being a pragmatist, it was in fact Alito thinking about the negative consequences that would flow from this interpretation of the statute. I think it shows, though, that we've got some very different orientations among the conservatives on the bench. And it's probably too soon to uh, make too much of, you know, one decision from Justice Gorsuch. Um, he's still plenty conservative, and he still will be joining his colleagues on other issues, as I think the DACA case demonstrates. But we should pay attention to the ways in which legal conservatism differs. And so even, even these judges who are Trump appointees can't be counted on to walk in lockstep with one another. Do you see those differences on the left as well, on the left of the court, differences, strong differences in terms of reading of the law and the history of the law? Yes, you do, although perhaps not as marked, uh, although I think, again, the DACA case shows us you know, one kind of cleavage um, that we can see among the left of center justices, because of course, there were a group of judges who were in agreement with the fairly narrow approach that the Roberts majority took uh, with respect to uh, the question of the rescinding of DACA and why the Trump administration had failed to comply with the Administrative Procedures Act and thus its own action was faulty. That was a very 
administrative law-oriented way of addressing the claim without addressing other aspects of the issue. You know, the, the very question of whether the administration had the authority to do this in the first place, the Obama administration, that is. And what we saw from Sotomayor was a separate opinion arguing that, you know, there were other legal and normative issues, in fact, flaws, faults with uh, what had happened that the court should have addressed, principally the equal protection question, that the Trump administration had done more than just violate technicalities of administrative procedures. The Trump administration had actually committed discrimination on the basis of ethnicity, on the basis of Latin ethnicity in the way it was applying the DACA recension. It had a, it had a purpose, a discriminatory purpose. And she was, in a separate opinion, suggesting that the court should have addressed that. In other words, should have gone further in a leftward direction. But you do see those kind of cleavages within, you know, the left uh, coalition on the court. You have judges who are more pragmatic and others that are uh, more interested in perhaps progressive legal policy. Uh, and so you do have those cleavages there as well. I wonder if the jubilation by some over the DACA ruling is premature because it seems the ruling is regarding the manner in which President Trump ended or tried to end the program rather than being a decision on whether he can or cannot end it in the future. And and isn't he refiling the case anyway? So, so is this uh, jubilation, as I say, misplaced? Yes. I mean, there, one way to read it is that it's, it's a short-term victory or a limited victory, except that in Robert's uh, recitation of the reasons or the problems or the factors that the Trump administration failed to take into account, uh, one was this notion of reliance interests that individuals place in a particular policy or program such that if that policy or program is going to be uh, disbanded, there has to be careful analysis and study of what the repercussions are going to be. And I don't think that's going to be so easily surmounted, uh, particularly in an era, the COVID era now I'll refer to, in which a lot of the DACA recipients have gone on to become a very critical members of the critical care industry, of the medical industry. And so, you know, those kind of almost social reliance interests are now at work in thinking about what are the appropriate procedures and sets of facts to consider about whether to rescind the program or not. So all of a sudden, it seems that the threshold is a little higher, is a little steeper for the Trump administration to be able to make the case that it has good reasons uh, or it has considered all the good reasons that are out there in deciding whether to rescind this. So, I mean, it's not perhaps as broad a statement about the, the fault uh, or the flaws of the Trump administration's decision, but practically speaking, this will at least for the longish short term, longish short term, uh, I think keep 
the DACA program in place. I want to go back to something you said before, which was that you were more surprised by Chief Justice Roberts' opinion on the discrimination case than Neil Gorsuch. Can you expound on that a little? Uh, Well, thank you for raising that, uh, because uh, I think it goes back to your original question regarding uh, what on earth John Roberts is doing uh, on this court. Uh, The reason I I would argue one could be surprised about his presence in that six-member majority is that he had been a rather vigorous dissenter to the court's earlier decision um, from several years ago regarding same-sex marriage and regarding its mandate in an appropriate interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. Um, He was in dissent there. So he, he isn't inclined to be a particular uh, sympathetic vote uh, with respect to anti-gay, anti-transgender discrimination. We wouldn't necessarily expect that of him. I think his presence there is probably best understood strategically. It's certainly possible that Roberts is convinced or was able to be convinced by the textualist argument, the textually strict reading of Title VII, which is the basis for the Gorsuch opinion. But the other thing that Robert's presence in that majority does is it allows him to control the assignment of the opinion. When a chief justice is in a majority coalition, uh, the chief justice decides who will write that opinion. And for strategic purposes, it would be very useful to select someone like Gorsuch, the judge most likely to defect to the other side, to the dissenting position, if, let's say, one of the more liberal judges tried to write the kind of opinion that might not be so narrowly focused on text, that might be a broader social policy or pragmatic argument. And so Roberts avoids that by assigning the opinion to the most conservative justice in the group. And, you know, that's a strategic decision that keeps majorities together. It also keeps the rationale of the case as conservative as possible. And I think the other thing that the Chief Justice's membership in that majority coalition signals is once again the sort of institutional backing of the court behind what is a very important anti-discrimination decision, you know, a very significant ruling. By the Chief Justice being part of that majority, it lends legitimacy and it lends credence to the entire project of reading Title VII in that way. So that's some of the suspicion we would have about what he's doing there. Judges often modify their sincerely held ideological preferences for other concerns, including institutional ones. Does it happen that a justice is assigned to write the opinion and then someone leaves and goes to the other side based on who's writing it and if it's taking too broad a view? I mean, you mentioned that he purposely and strategically assigned Gorsuch to write it. Could it happen that a justice makes up his or her mind and then switches sides based on who's writing the opinion? Well, yes. I mean, there's a phenomenon known as judicial fluidity, which is simply judges changing their minds. But one of the reasons that a judge might change their mind and 
depart from a majority coalition and join a minority coalition might be that the focus of an opinion is just too broad, too broad for that judge. And that judge just can't go along with that direction and jump ship, essentially. We, we have some evidence and data about this happening, but this is difficult to study for the U.S. Supreme Court because their conferencing is completely confidential. And until we see the uh, papers of former justices opened, we often don't know that fluidity has taken place, that someone has changed their mind and either abandoned a coalition or come on board with a coalition as a result of someone's opinion writing. So opinion writing matters. And again, I don't think there was any fear on the part of the chief uh, or really any fear at all that the four more liberal justices you know, were going to abandon the coalition and abandon the reading of Title VII as protecting uh, LGBT people. But the way the opinion is framed is important, again, in keeping the more conservative parts of that coalition. And will it turn out to have been a good decision? Will it turn out to have been a good strategic bargain? Is the Gorsuch approach going to lead to more problems down the road? Did he leave too many loopholes, things unanswered? For example, what might be the exceptions based on religious freedom, religious employers' exceptions? Those are all left unknown, and that's perhaps one of the downsides of the narrow approach he took. And so I think, you know, we, we have here a situation where it's a, it's a composite majority, um, but you notice that no one else spoke. It's, a, it's the, again, the court speaking with a unified voice in the opinion, and that also, I think, is very important to the chief for these high-profile decisions, to not have separate opinions that weaken them. Take us forward a little bit to what we're expecting in the next, I guess, few days uh, about uh, other major high-profile cases. What are you looking for specifically? What are you waking up in the middle of the night thinking about? Who's going to do what? Give us a preview. We have several big cases still left to be decided, um, including those that were argued at the very end of term in the very unusual phone method uh, of doing oral arguments remotely, since the court suspended its in-person oral arguments uh, in March. So we have quite a few very big cases ahead. There is a major abortion rights case. Uh, that remains to be decided. This case was actually argued way back at the beginning of the term. And so the fact that we haven't had a ruling about it, uh, and it has to do with what restrictions on uh, the availability of abortion a state may legitimately put in place uh, in the interest of regulating the health and safety of the procedure. And this has been, of course, an area that has allowed wide state discretion to make abortions more difficult to obtain and to put very burdensome restrictions on reproductive health care providers. That's 
the issue in that case, but there's another even broader principle in the case, which comes out of Louisiana, by the way. There's another broader principle that's potentially even more worrisome, and that is this whole issue of who can bring claims uh, of complaint about state regulations in the first place. Since Roe versus Wade and since the progeny of cases that have resulted from it, um, it has been understood that physicians and medical providers have what is called standing to sue on behalf of patients and in their own interest uh, to challenge these laws. Uh, but the question of medical provider standing is also at issue in this case. And so if the court takes a very narrow view and says only women who are in the position of needing this medical service may be the ones who will bring the case, that will create a further handicap to actually litigating these matters. Since a lot of the women who are in this situation are indigent, lack the resources for a sustained litigation campaign, and if you think about the terms of their situation, for many of them, their own situation of requiring a reproductive medical service will be long past the time the case is resolved. So uh, to me, that's a, that's a big case lurking. And the fact that we haven't heard about it yet, that it's been so long in the works, suggests that there's some sort of deadlock that hasn't been resolved. And it's probably over the breadth of the decision and how far certain elements on the court do or do not want to go. So that's a big one uh, to be expecting. And I suppose the other most major, well, there, there's several others to think of. You, you, you ask me, do you want a top, top three or top two? I mean, there, there, are just, there are many others that I have my eye on. Let's have a top three. Well, of course, there are also the group of cases that involve the question of executive immunity and the question of President Trump's financial records and who may and who may not successfully access them in the course of investigation of other issues, other parties' legal issues. And so in those cases, what we have is the situation of how far does executive immunity from criminal prosecution extend? Does it, does it immunize a president from any kind of investigation into his, in this case it's President Trump, uh, into his financial records, including those uh, involving his pre-presidential period? So these are his tax returns. Uh, and other financial records that would shed light on potential complicity regarding bribery that might have taken place during the campaign. And so there are a couple of directions uh, that this question is being preceded from. One, from the perspective of whether a grand jury subpoena must be respected, this information being sought, not even from President Trump himself directly, but from his accounting firm. So a grand jury investigation into a violation uh, of law being pursued by a district attorney. And then there's also a parallel uh, request or demand for this information from two different congressional committees. And so there we have almost a direct separation of powers conflict between 
legislative investigation powers and executive immunity. That's a huge matter. And of course, it has huge political implications for the current dynamic of conflict between uh, the GOP and the Democratic Party and conflict uh, within Washington over uh, the Trump administration uh, and various behaviors of the Trump uh, administration and the president. So that's a huge, that's a huge case. It's joined cases. And then maybe a third uh, that also has huge implications for the upcoming uh, presidential election is uh, a case that involves the question of what are called faithless electors in our electoral college system. So again, these are sort of technical matters. They're kind of technical separation of powers or, or technical governmental operations cases, but they matter so much to the way our institutions will function. So the faceless electors cases ask uh, the question of whether states may enforce that their electoral college voters conform to the popular vote in the state. May states, in fact, enforce this through fines, penalties, etc.? Or are electors allowed to be free agents? Is this how they are understood to be designed in terms of the original understanding of the Constitution? And this, of course, matters because if electors are permitted to be faithless, if there is no sanction for this, in a close election, a couple of electoral votes can matter, as we've seen in the past. So how the court treats this uh, has immediate implications for the upcoming election in the fall. Uh, and in fact, the case was expedited for the purpose of deciding it before the 2020 November election. Professor Mavidi, we're going to have a lot more to talk about, so maybe I'll have to have you back. But in the meantime, you know, I always ask people about music on this show. It's part of the show. It's called Talking Beats. And uh, I wonder what kind of music you're you're listening to or or what's occupying your musical life these days, if anything. Oh, my. Well, as you know, because we are acquainted with one another, uh, I love opera. Uh, opera is my absolute favorite musical genre. I mean, I, I love I love voice. I love choral music, but opera, grand opera, is my uh, is my favorite. And so, uh, you know, I've been taking advantage of the free live streams that the Metropolitan uh, has been uh, making available. I uh, I love Baroque opera. That's my that's my favorite period, and I find it soothing. And of course, Baroque opera is always about corrupt politics. It's usually about gods and kings and things, but most of the operas were very thinly disguised political satires and commentary about these sorts of problems. And so in some ways, Handel and Monteverdi have a lot to say about our own current political circumstances. So I, I find them kindred spirits at this time. Professor Nancy Mavidi, I thank you. Thank you, Daniel. It's been my pleasure to be on your show, and I look forward to speaking to you again in person sometime soon. You've been listening to Talking Beats. The music discussed today is available in a playlist on my Spotify or anywhere you get your music. The original music is composed by Ronald Markham. 
The producer is Doug Christian. I'm Daniel Melchuk. See you next time. <laughs>